This episode is sponsored by our friends at Musicbed. Find the perfect song for your films with a highly curated roster featuring hundreds of artists, bands, and composers. As a good listener, you can get your first month of subscription free or 20% off a single song purchase. Just enter promo code GOOD when you check out. This episode of Good is also sponsored by Lemieux Company. Let's hear from the man himself, Wilson Lemieux. Are you recording me right now? Yeah. Lemieux Company. That's L-E-M-I-E-U-X. Lemieux Company. One of the best production companies around. Also this season, we're continuing to give away a ton of content over at Patreon, sharing treatments, behind-the-scenes photos, and ways to interact with our guests from each episode. To become a patron, check out patreon.com slash goodthepodcast. Hey guys, my name's Christian Schultz, and this is Good. Hey everybody, Christian here. Welcome back to a new season of Good. Um, if you couldn't tell by now, uh, things are a little bit different. Um, our good friend Jared Hogan um, is not going to be joining us for this season. And um, I know for some of you it's going to be a deal breaker, but I hope that you would stick around for the good content, the good times. Um, <clears throat> so we wanted to start out this season with... Um, a great interview, and we managed to get a great interview with a guy named Rob Legato, who is um, has been a part of so many iconic films that we have all seen and love, um, just to name a few. Uh, he, and he's a visual effects supervisor, which means he, he's in charge of every bit of visual, visual effects in the entire film. Um, but he was the visual effects supervisor for Apollo 13, Titanic, uh, Armageddon, Castaway, Bad Boys 2, The Aviator, The Departed, Good Shepherd, you know, um, Avatar, geez, Shutter Island. So to say the least, he works with some of the best people in the world, you know. So I was lucky to get this interview and talk to him a little bit and, uh, and glean what he has to say about the industry. So let's hear from visual effects supervisor, Rob Legato. So what was the first thing that kind of caught your eye as far as the path kind of into filmmaking? Well, the very first thing, uh, A, there was there's always a fascination. Okay, try to keep this a short story. There's always a fascination with the magic of movies in general, mm. not the, the visual effects magic, but the magic that you could be immersed into this thing that's projected on a wall and you forget you're watching something projected on a wall and you just kind of walk into the movie and, right. and are entertained by it. So the fir- very first thing was, I, the very first film I saw was Pinocchio and I was about four or five years old. My dad took me to the movies and I was fascinated as much with the projector beam projecting, going from one place to the other, as much as my little brain could understand. And there's something is like, how does it create that? And mm-hmm. and the creation of that was fascinating. So I was interested in the movie, but I was also interested in sort of the mechanics of how, how a movie is done. How right. how does that illusion happen? Um, and then you know, so I studied as much as one can study without a film school or anything else uh, as I was growing up, but never knowing it's an occupation until I watched. Uh, I was a you know a avid movie fan you know i'd watch whatever right. then uh, things on tv and stuff like that and anytime i could open up a book and see lights and a camera to demystify the process and right. i saw the godfather and the godfather was like a, a, an epiphany it was like well it became an art form uh and it became so immensely fascinated by how i was transported into this movie and then i started to realize well what's a director of photography what's a mm-hmm. production designer i read the you know because now it's really fascinating so i you know read all the credits i've seen it you know a zillion times uh after that it's like i want to do that i don't know what those jobs are i don't know how you do them but i want to be involved in that so that was the moment that said well i'm definitely 
going down this path and I want to go to film school because I want to learn this stuff. And I didn't know exactly what I would do in film school. I didn't know exactly what a filmmaker was. So a, a lot of it was, um, it was just, I had to go I'd be, get my foot in the door and see what any of it was. And, uh, right. and, and that became the, 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 the beginning of it all visual effects didn't have much to do with it uh, uh literally until after i was working for quite some time i just had a, like a little bit of a technical ability i could develop my own pictures and i knew how to plug in electronic things and right. was interested in physics and and you know uh lot the laws of physics and all those things kind of become part of your uh, your uh, ability to solve problems so there's there's something that's kind of built into my system that was perfect for this kind of work right it seems like your curiosity sort of like paved the way in some in some ways, you know, and some of the the techniques that were being used, you know, with stuff like the Titanic and stuff. But even earlier than that, was there like a like a problem, you know, the first time you came to a, a problem where you're like, oh, I need to do this myself. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there actually was. I was uh, after I graduated from film school, I got a, a bachelor of arts in cinematography, and um, again, I, you just don't know exactly what to do or how to get your foot in the door right. and things like that. So I, uh, I was lucky enough to get a job as a, a, a TV commercial producer, uh, and I worked with uh, uh, you know somebody who became a friend of mine, my mentor, and uh, he was a director, and I was the producer, and he his. Um, he wasn't as strong in the in the actual cinematography portion of it. That was, of course, I was fascinated by that. So I was learning sort of the craft of movie making uh, uh, with him and through him and with the jobs. And I knew where the crane goes and mm-hmm. how this would be lit and how you know I was learning my my trade. And I would pick up a camera whenever I could and photograph anything. And then there's this show came up it was a, actually i still remember it was a toyota commercial where it was sort of an impossible thing somebody had a this can be a, try to keep this a short story the guy had to just leap from where he was standing into mm-hmm. a hard top car sit in the driver's seat and then uh, look out the window and say some mm-hmm. you know commercially tag and no one could figure out how to do it and we didn't have people like me around that you could call to your set and say well you're the supervisor tell us how to right. do it we'll do it. so it became because i had this kind of technical-ish background it's like well i wanted to see if i could do it and i looked up there was an old thing that uh, probably very few people remember um uh, that used front screen projections called uh, IntraVision, and they did like the famous crash, train crash in The Fugitive, and and, and mm-hmm. Stand by Me, the kids running on the railroad tracks and the trains mm-hmm. coming, and it was perfectly safe. And they used these front screen projection techniques. So I copied essentially the idea of that and found a lower cost version to it, which is to do it on blue screen, where you put a piece of glass paint in blue. I had the production designer paint in blue the outline of the car. And then when you do a live comp between them, he, the the painted blue in the foreground holds out the car from the guy, you know, jumping into it. So I got it to work, and people right. were like, "Holy shit, that's you know, that's great!" And you should go work at a company that does that. And it's like, well, it was a lark for me. It wasn't like, well, that's my occupation. I just want to see if I can do it. And hmm. you know, once I did, it was like, like, okay, I did it. Next, you know, I, I want to direct films and and do whatever. I'm still in the learning phase of even what I could do. Um, and at that time, of course, commercials were so far removed from films. If you worked in commercials, how right. you make the leap to films or TV was was very strict and very hard to do. Um, so at any rate, I, I um, uh, then somebody recommended me to to work at a company called Bob Abel Associates that did only visual effects oriented things and they were less experienced in the live action portion of it where that's all I knew because I worked for three years doing commercials and cranes and gaffers and grips and setting up, you know, you know, what amounted to what I didn't know at the time, like second unit setups uh, to, to uh, leapfrog the, the production. So you, the main crew could walk in and everything's set up and ready to go. So I was mm-hmm. very fluent in all that sort of stuff and very comfortable on the set. Um, and so I, my skill set was in, es- in essence, you know, producing and saying, well, tell me what you need to do. And then I could tell you how you do it on a stage. And they were right. less fluent in it. So I did that. And then I discovered that they didn't know that much about how to do it in the first place. So it was like, well, you, you know, and every time I'd be in a meeting, they said oh, that won't work and that won't work. It's like, well, that's, bullshit to me right right something's got to work so mm. 
I'll go grab a camera since I know how to use a camera when they had cameras in, the, in, in their little stage area. And I would set something up and then it would work. And they'd say, oh, my God, you know how to do this. It's like, right. well, no, I was showing you that it can be done. You can't just say no to everything. You got to try it. And, right. and in the in the trying process, the trial and error, you learn a lot. It's like you have to you have to uh, uh, decide to go on a journey and the journey will tell you how to get to the finish line. But you have to start the journey. You can't keep on saying, right. no, I won't go on it because I don't have this information. You have to kind of embark on it. So that's ultimately what I ended up doing. And then people said, well, you're an expert. <laughs> I'm not an expert. I just, right. I just, I was lucky break and it worked. Um, and I had, you know, I, over the years, you know, you develop a certain amount of skills that, you know, you know something about physics, so you know something about how the world works, and then you know something about light from photography, and mm-hmm. then you're sort of interested in the trick of movie making, even just cutting from one scene to another, and it seems seamless, and it just it feels like it was shot at the same time in the same room. But if you know anything about making movies, you know that that's it, it, it's right. insane. That doesn't really happen. Um, so the 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 whole sum total of that. When I embarked on visual effects, I was not interested in effects, more or less, is living up to the illusion of movie making in general, mm-hmm. and I'm a participant of it. So if I do something, uh, as much as I wanted to do the main unit stuff, the, the directing The Godfather, I, I would do my portion of it, but I wanted to make it look like it was perfectly natural and fit into right. the narrative of the movie without you seeing the seam and belay the magic. Like if you saw a bad actor in a scene, you go, okay, well, it's a, it's a, you know, it's an actor in a scene. If you see Marlon Brando, the Godfather, he's the Godfather, and you, you, right. you forget all of those things. Um, so that was my bent on it is continually, and it's a tough journey because you know as soon as you start faking certain things, you have to get really good at it to fool your eye because it's something just doesn't seem right. You know, something right. is wrong, and you and you have to have a lot of experience to know why it doesn't seem right, why it doesn't look correct. Why all those things? And so the journey is: I'm going to, you know, uh, embark on things that I could make fit seamlessly into the film, and then, you know, ego-wise, I'm at the same plane as the other filmmakers in the movie. If you can't right. see the difference between my work and their work, then I am, uh, you know, comparable. Uh, you know, all that stuff. So that that, that was kind of the, the theme, or the. Or what. I've always wanted to ask someone in who works in sort of the CG side of movies, like, is it hard to look back at your work because technology advances so yeah. quickly? Yeah, I mean, the the stuff that I can look back and be fond of is the stuff I shot in camera and uh, used mm. uh, sort of in-camera uh, techniques that were used for, since the beginning of the filmmaking process, the very early CG stuff. I, I shied away from it for a long time because I didn't understand that I only knew you know, real things and lights and cameras and, and physics of cameras and, and field of view and all the various things that that's part and parcel of, of real photography. So right. a lot of the stuff I did had a lot to do with in-camera things. And then I got pretty decent at compositing. If I would shoot all the elements correctly and lit them all correctly and stage them all correctly, the assemblage of it would make a seamless comp. And some of them are in the movies I've done early on from you know, Apollo 13 and various other things. And I also, every time I did any of the movies, I did second unit and I was the second unit cameraman as well. So part and parcel of my work was I would do some live stuff intermixed with the CG stuff or the, the visual effecty stuff. The stuff that does that ages poorly is when you can't get on top of some shots and some things right, and you right. can't make it work, which now is so much easier to do. I mean, the big innovation on Titanic was CG water, which is like you can mm. now, it's a plug-in for After Effects for right. 100 bucks, and, you know, looks every bit as good as the millions of dollars we spent trying to perfect it mm. in that movie. But that was... You know, uh, and some of the stuff in Titanic still holds up, and some of it's embarrassing. Some of it doesn't right. hold up very well. And you know, to, to be you know totally honest, some of the stuff that doesn't hold up, I didn't do either. We had other companies do it that I wasn't happy with the technique of relying on CG of the day when I thought it would be better if we shot things more realistically. Right. Uh, so there's certain things that, that you know, I, I get pegged for. Somebody came up to me and said, well, how could you let that shot go? It's like, well, I didn't do that one. I have a few that I did let go that are equally as embarrassing. But, um, right. It is an interesting thought, though, like th- what you just said. You know, you could tell during that time that this that it could be better. Like even in the moment, like – 
when computer animation and computer graphics just started coming out, you know, was there a very clear, like, we know that this isn't good, like as good as we want it to be? Yeah, that's why I shied away from it for many years. I never tried to um, solve the problem that way. I, I uh, an early story was I did Apollo 13, and you know, Digital Main was set up to be this computer company rivaling ILM, and CG was all the you know all the rage. And um, uh, there was a scene where the uh, uh, the capsule you know floats to the uh, ocean, floats down with the parachutes to the ocean, and I was going to film it in such a way that it felt more like a newsman, a, a news kind mm. of uh, photographer right. photographed it. Uh, it had a, come, a little bit of a documentary feel, and then I got a tremendous amount of pushback from the company because they wanted it to be a CG shot, and it's like, I can't get there from here. I, I have never seen anything that looks realistic mm. enough. And I'm trying to make it look ultra realistic, look like I like it wasn't staged for a movie, but it was why did it have to be a CG shot? Because they they wanted the company to to uh, put forth that sort of image and and tackle that problem. So at the end of the day they can say, well look, we're gonna break CG work. So mm. they showed me and then and it was like a full court press where I was saying, you know, for me, I want to take the thing, throw it out of a helicopter, put real parachutes right. on it, sit on a cliff in a Catalina and photograph the thing, and I'm done. And right. it looks it looks every bit uh, as good as it can be. And I knew you know, that I could get away with the miniature because the miniature isn't that small for the, what the capsule is. Parachutes have to look real. They're, 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 they're you know, basically doing the job that they're intended to do, even right. if they're smaller and you, you overcrank the camera. And it looks pretty good. I mean, it looks like it's undetectable from the real thing. And I was very much interested in it. So my point of view, my drive was how to make it as realistic as humanly possible. And theirs was how do we do this in CG? And it's like, well, and then they, they screw the, themselves by saying, well, we can do that shot for $100,000. It's like I could shoot all day long with two helicopters in Catalina for $35,000, right. and it looks absolutely dead realistic. And the day after I'm done shooting, it's in the movie. Mm. Yours is, and it could be a six-month process, and I may not be happy. And then they, they um, really screwed the pooch when they showed me something that somebody did in, I think it's called Outbreak. It was a scene that somebody did in CG with CG parachutes and a box that's floating down to like Africa or some mm. some place, and it was horrible. Right, I mean, it was just horrible. And it's like, well, are you showing this to convince me that it can't be done? Uh, um, and wow. so I knew that one day you could probably get there, but that was not the day. And that right. and that day wasn't anytime soon that I could see. And because I couldn't get my hands into it and actually render it and know how the lighting worked and all that stuff. It was all a big black box mystery to me. I, I shied away from it for many years until CG caught up with my ability to alter the, the parameters and, and, uh, and be able to create real life uh, realistically. And mostly because the computer, you know, like right now it's called ray tracing and, and other various things and other texturing and, and all the stuff that we end up doing now that if you set it up like you would on a stage and you build a 3d set and you put a light where you put a light, if it were a real thing and the light that bounces off the furniture and the walls and the things contribute to the lighting of the scene and all that mm -hmm. stuff, mm -hmm. it's kind of an automatic process, much like it is in real life. You put a lamp up and it does all the work for you. You just have to know where the lamp goes and how, how to expose for it and how much fill you use. But that's mechanical work that I am fluent in. Um, uh, but in the computer, it's like we have to fake all that. Well, as soon as you don't have to fake all that, you kind of get this real-life happy accident that contributes to the believability of the scene because it's, in essence, no different than real life. It's simulating how light hits an object, bounces off of it, reflects off another object, hits this, contributes to the scene, and all of a sudden it looks pretty damn realistic right. out of the box. And so now that it, you can do that, then I can influence the art portion of it, you know, what my, you know, because part and parcel of shooting is you're, you're setting up a camera to capture the story at its best. Mm. How is it composed? How is it lit? Who's in shadow? Who's not in shadow? How does it, how does it uh, uh, you know, start? How does it end? How does it unwind so you tell the story from the beginning of the shot to the end of the shot? And how does it contribute to the next shot? And hence the sequence and then hence the movie. So all those things are all skills. It's not just recreating a realistic-looking environment. It, that shot has to mean something. That has to right. tell a story. And so once you're able to kind of 
influence the storytelling part, which I'm most interested in, and then the mechanics of it where it fits pretty neatly into the magic of movies. If you go on a movie set, it doesn't look like it looks like in the film. There's, you know, all the lights are everywhere, all the cables, all the stuff, and you only could see what the camera vantage point is. And all of a sudden, you peel out everything else, you add sound effects, music, and dialogue, and all of a sudden, you're in a movie again. So that magic is, is not terribly dissimilar than how it's created in a computer or anything else. Now, if you could recreate that moment and you, and you as the audience believe it to be real, it is real. It's, it's, it's as real as any movie ever made. So there's no separation between church and state there. It is, is exactly movie making at its, uh, and now you're just judged by if you're a good movie maker or not, you know, yes, I can make something that looks realistic, but if it looks realistic and it doesn't tell the story and it bores the audience, what good is it? So it's not just the achievement of being able to do it. It's like, you know, like in the case of Jungle Book, it's not, yes, you could create an animal that looks real. What is it doing? What is it mm-hmm. saying? How is it moving in the scene? How is it lit? Does it advance the story? You know, it's like you could shoot a real person who's not a very good actor, and you go, well, yes, they're, very, they're absolutely realistic, but they're not realistic as the character. They don't, I don't right. believe it. They don't advance the story. And so you're right back at square one again until you get a magic performer that is just like they just you just melt in front of you and they, it completely belies the 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 craft of acting and the craft of movie making in general right. uh, and the same is true of all the disciplines you know if it's costuming or or uh, props or sets or whatever everybody's striving for this verisimilitude that transport is so good that it, you don't even question it anymore you don't question what clothes Marlon Brando's wearing in The Godfather or any other character that you like in a film or where what chair he's sitting in or what 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 places you you the the, the more skillful the the less skillful you kind of feel like it's a set the door when it closes it kind of shakes the rest of the walls mm-hmm. you kind of detect the artifice of it all but if you're great and the people I work with you know very lucky to work with some really incredible uh, gifted uh, filmmakers in their own right uh, who apply their craft like a Hugo? You know, they're, they're the best of everybody. Everybody's like a three-time right. Academy Award winner. The cameraman and the production designer, and the costume designer, and and uh, the prop guy. And the, it was it was right. astounding. And you know, of course, there's Martin Scorsese, who's like the kingpin of doing great <laughs> films. And Thelma Schoonmaker who won three Oscars for her, you know, incredible editing. You know, and so you're working at the really top of the craft there with the best of the best, and and uh, it's exhilarating. It always sucks to get bogged down in the editing process while you try to track down the soundtrack for your film. We've all been there, and so has a team at MusicBed. In fact, that's the entire reason why they built their platform. By collaborating with hundreds of artists, bands, and composers, they've made it easier than ever to find the perfect song for your film and get back to your editing. You can download a single song, get unlimited music with a subscription, or even create a custom song or score from scratch. Their roster is growing every day with more than 20,000 songs ranging from cinematic and electronic to indie rock and hip hop. To create your free account and learn more, go to musicbed.com. Plus, as a good listener, they're giving you one month of subscription for free or 20% off a single song purchase. Just enter promo code GOOD when you check out. Stretch out my voice. Here we go. Has a 10-1 or a 10-2 ever gotten in the way of your perfect shot? Well, you're in luck. With the new Dolly Potty by Lemieux Company. Yay! The Dolly Potty is an easy-to-use, custom-fitted porta potty mountable to any on-set dolly of your choosing. Gone are the days of missing blue hour because you're stuck in brown town. Now you can stay both regular and flexible as you shoot the shit that makes your real. The Dolly Potty is coated in an antibacterial, impenetrable, odor-resistant film made from the sweat of the most overworked and undervalued Dolly Grips in the business. Like getting paid not a lot of money, dude, for working? Hell no! It's available in onset black, ivory, or chroma key green, just in case you need to keep it discreet. Why take five when you need to drop a deuce? Keep the shot alive with the new Dolly Potty by Lemieux Company. 
The same folks who brought you the disco drone and the boom pole boom box. Pay now with Visa, MasterCard, and Exposure Bucks. Save a crap load of time with your Dolly Potty today. Visit us online or on Instagram at lemieux.company. That's L-E-M-I-E-U-X dot C-O-M-P-A-N-Y. There's always this debate of practical versus CG, right? Mm-hmm. Especially with like the new Marvel movies coming out. And it's sort of the, you know, people always bring up the Matrix, for example, like as that the core of the debate, like Matrix 1 versus Matrix 2, when they started like, there's innovation in, in Matrix 1 and then Matrix 2 was just, oh, computers now can do everything that we wanted to do forever, you know? Um, where do you land on that debate? And I, I feel like it's somewhere in the middle, but I want to hear you kind of describe, you know, because you're very practical. Like you build things, you know, just even like little three second, you know, and, and Hugo, for example, when he's going down the slide and that kind of one take thing that you guys mm-hmm. do, it's, you built that, you yeah. know, for three seconds, you know? And I think it's, there's something magical about that. I, I think you're kind of touching on it, but as far as the debate between practical effects and, and CG, where do you, how do you kind of differentiate between that? What nets out is what can you do well? What, you know, what, mm. how can you pull off the moment? Like if, if you do CG and you say, well, we're going to um, uh, animate a person doing something, it's like, okay, well, you have to be a spectacular animator to do that. Right. Or you could uh, shoot it. Or you can shoot as a reference and then copy it, or you can motion capture it. So if you do all three of them, uh, by the time it ends up in the movie and it's properly lit, you know it becomes the correct technique if it demands it be that to do it just to do it. And and what the, the the fallacy is in some of these things is like, well, just do it in the computer. Well, if you can't pull off the physics of a car crash in the computer, just the fact that you could do it doesn't make that good because the right. brain detects. You know, this minutest differences from real life. We're, we're trained, whether we know it or not, to understand gravity and physics and, and inertia and wind and all those things are just built into our system, perhaps to protect us from danger or whatever, but we're, we're, we're very keen on it. And when you see it not done correctly, it should be to, to end this debate is like, I can't tell if it's done on a computer, if it's done for real, then there's no debate because I can't see it. Right. Now, if I say, you know, I just don't like that CG work, it's, well, then you noticed it. It's like, I don't like that mm-hmm. miniature. It's, well, then you noticed it's a miniature, and then it didn't, then it didn't work. So mm-hmm. the, the debate ends with, I don't know how you did it, and so obviously whatever you did was the best mm-hmm. uh, right. version or way right. of, of producing it. So, you know, uh, and un- unfortunately for people, they see the bad stuff and associate that with the term. And it gets, mm. you know, it gets a, a bad name. Now, in the Marvel movies, what makes it hard is they are, even if you built it all, it would look ridiculous. I mean, it would right. not look <laughs> like the real thing. It would look like something else. Right. Um, you know, and like say, like a, a, a pick a pick a movie like Wizard of Oz, where like Wizard of Oz, we love it because of its its age and its and all that. But do you believe that there's a cornfield and on you know on the stage at MGM? I mean, with a painted backdrop behind it, do you really believe it? Right. You know, it's charming and all the various things that we grew to love it. But you know, you couldn't pull that off. I mean, you couldn't. There's no way to pull it off unless you went on a real location and shot it. But they didn't, and so they produced this this artifice. So just by making it real isn't real enough. You know, it, it wasn't mm. realistic enough. Yes, they put real corn stalks and they put it on stage. They artificially lit it and didn't do a great job artificially lighting it. They need to get tremendous exposure just to get three-strip Technicolor cameras to record anything. So it's very artificial and stagey and all those things, right. but it is real. I mean, it's a real thing. It's just not really, not really that great. And those older movies looked like you could, you know, definitely, it's like, well, I don't like fantasy films because it doesn't look real. It's like, well, yes, because what they did and how they did it was not realistically depicted. And right. and, and there's a distinction between all of those arguments. If it gets pulled off, like hopefully in the case when you see Lion King and you'll see not even the trailer, but the work of the movie when the movie comes out, when you see it, there's certain scenes in there where it's impossible to detect Hmm. until they speak that we did anything i mean it it, 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 it is 
at a pretty high bar. Uh, and then it should solve the argument. What difference does it make? Are you entertained by it? Uh, did you enjoy it? Did you, you didn't look at it and go, well, I don't like CG movies. It's like, well, if you can't tell that CG, or if you can't right. tell it's a visual effect, or you can't tell it was, you know, artificially created, and you believe it to be real, you there is no argument, you know, right. and, and it happens to be the best use of the technology just like the best use of technology is building a set on the MGM backlot with cameras and and sound booms and you know uh, uh, gaffers and grips and electricians and, and uh, costumers and hairdressers you know all the very, all the stuff that makes up a movie movie is all incredibly artificial compared to real life right. but yet we believe it so uh, you know I, it, it's a roundabout answer to your question of where uh, um, but my tendency. Whatever is the easiest to get the best quality is what I generally go for. And if shooting something, you know, solves a problem, I'll give you a, 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 an example. Mm. Back then, was rather crude. We were doing Apollo thirteen, and part of uh, the the um, maneuverability of the capsule in space is that it would they'd, they'd send out essentially what amounts to a little jet or a little air pressure that would force the capsule to adjust course and and, and we would indicate it with a bit of a spray early days of cg and they want again they wanted to do it in cg or that seemed like the best thing because it has to track perfectly on the on the uh, model and the model you're shooting at one frame a second and motion control land and all that stuff so it seemed like the right thing to do and it was taking forever and it would you know bog down the computer and the amount of particles it could possibly spit out and then when it was printed in it's like well that looks like shit i mean i mm. that, that and they were on for a month and i what I end up doing, because it was faster, simpler, and better, is I got a little can of Avion spray, spray water, backlit it, sprayed it a, a bunch of times at different intervals of how long the pressure should be. We printed that on a card, and that card was in the exact spot of where the jet would come out of. So mm-hmm. in the space of 20 minutes, I made something with a zillion particles, all photographically lit, all done, yep. and... I mm-hmm. solved the problem. It was the best use of the technology at the time. Is grab a camera, put a backlight on it, grab a uh, you know a can of Evian right. spray. It already is pressurized. It's already doing all the, half the stuff that you're trying to simulate. That's the best use of the of the of the thing, and the shot still holds up because it still cause it looks real. So right. um, so all that. So I, I hope that answered think, your question. To some no, that I think this is. I mean, anytime that someone can personally talk about Apollo thirteen, Rob, I think it's a big <laughs> deal. What you're touching on is kind of the idea of like scientifically correct versus filmmaking. You know, yes. like what, when do you kind of play with that? Especially in uh, Apollo thirteen, you know, like I love all the research you guys did with like the stock footage, making people watch stock footage, and then saying, you know, what did you guys remember about this, and then making that and then you know being a filmmaker and taking those memories and like making the thing that you made but it wasn't scientifically correct you know like when do you kind of play with that and and feel like you can well i think you play with it all the time and there and there that's part of the art form is you're not creating real life you're creating movie life and you have to believe what you're seeing and you have to believe what you're seeing in the vocabulary of film where it's a shot here, a shot there, a verbal description from an actor. I think all those are tools to tell you the story right. uh, and and truncate physics and things. But the net result has to look like that could really happen in my brain. Now, I'm not a scientist, uh, and the audience is not necessarily a scientist. So if it looks plausible to you, you buy the moment. If it looks like somebody could get punched, fall over a, you know, a, a, a desk and land on the floor, and well, that looks like that it could happen. You know, try doing that sometimes. You have to be pretty good at it. You have to shoot it in cuts because the inertia of actually getting somebody to be punched to land on a desk and go, you know, that's like almost impossible to do, but yet filmically it looks correct. It looks like you could do it. So you're still making a movie. You're still making a piece of entertainment. You're not creating a a documentary. And even now when you create documentaries, you, you fake it, you you fake it to look and tell the story the wish, the way you want to do it. Now, when you go too far and, you know, I won't pick on the Marvel movies, but you know, you can make the Marvel movies much more realistic in terms of what the actors are doing, like what they're flying through space and hitting a wall and all that by literally cutting it apart. 
to see it in one go, your brain goes, there's no way the physics will allow him to travel that far, right. move his center of gravity in midair, hit this. But if you did it in five cuts, like you would do if you're doing an action movie, because you believe an action movie, but you're no, you're the sum total of the five shots defy if it were done in one piece, um, uh, you know, gravity and all the stuff. But because it's chopped up into discernible parts that you do believe, it's the assemblage of it creates the solution that somebody right. flew off the desk and hit it. You buy the moment. Well, y- you have to kind of understand how you get away with stuff and what um, uh, creates an impression or um, uh, I don't know how else to describe it, but it, it conjures up, a, 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 you know, like a good painting. It's not necessarily photographically realistic, but it conjures up a mood or a tone right. that puts you and transports you in a, in a particular place. Like all good art does, music, it doesn't right. matter what it is, a statue, it, does, it, it just transcends itself. And, and, and the impression that you're left with, the memory you're left with is richer than the mechanics that are used to create it. So... You you have to use your your artistic and filmmaker uh, um, uh, viewport to say I'm going to uh, stage something this way for the dramatic import that I need it to be. You know, you can take anything that I've done to use myself as an example. You know, a train crash in Hugo or whatever. I mean, all that was I created. You know, essentially what amounts to real life on the computer, cut it apart accentuated what it could do the speed how fast how long you know if a train went through a station it'd be over about a second and a half but you know instead it takes place in 30 seconds without you knowing that we've truncated time and that you know he's traveling in one shot almost the entire length of the station the second shot he's traveling almost the entire length of the station again you know so you're if you do it deftly enough you don't know that you're doing it And, and you know all action scenes it's not just you know, me doing it, but all action scenes are are exaggerated to a huge amount uh, because it'd be over too fast. And you know, you want to see you know a car crash. It, it, it's the most boring thing in the world in one wide shot. It just doesn't right. look like it does anything. But in five cuts, it looks like it's dramatic and exciting and dangerous and scary and all the stuff. So you 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 know, and if you're not very talented. Sound like an insult to people who are. They think, well, if I make it real, it's good. It's like, no, it's got to be real good. Mm, it's, it can't just mm. be real. It's uh, uh, because real is boring. Also, that's not movie making. You know, uh, there is a whole different um, approach to it. Of of you know, it's like even you know, reading a good novel. Some people can take you know, like Ernest Hemingway, a short number of words and create and paint a picture that is very vivid in your imagination. It's the skill of the writer. It's not just, you know, uh, the mechanics of writing. It's like the, 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 the wordsmith nature of moving one thing from another to another to another all of a sudden conjures up in your a, a, a picture in your mind right. and you get enthralled into the novel like the godfather gone with the wind or any novel that you've ever liked or an ernest, ernest hemingway novel or right you know the, the, it's the skill of the filmmaker of the of the storyteller that 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 uh, that uh, and it's a craft that you learn, it, uh, especially if you're good at it. For, you know, it takes a lifetime to learn, and I'm still learning. I'm, I every time I go do something, I think I did a decent job. I go look at somebody else's film and go, "Oh right. shit, <laughs> I, I could never have done that." I right. don't know how they did that. So, but I'm going to learn, and maybe it'll make my next film better. But you know, it's it's a craft that you'll never get on top of. You, you right. just you, you know. What was the um, What was the last film that you did that with? Um. Or a technique that you saw, or something. Well, I, there's a couple. I mean, they're all like bits and pieces of films. Like, um, uh, I, I, I love this. I didn't necessarily love the whole movie as a movie, but I love the scene in Ready Player One where they mm-hmm. totally faithfully recreate The Shining. Well, I have a special kinship with The Shining. I love that movie and big Stanley Kubrick fan, all that stuff. And to find out that they totally recreated this mythical place that is no longer built it was only built for the movie and knocked down and the scenes mm-hmm. and the, even the blood coming through the elevators are like holy shit i don't know that i would embark on it because i didn't i wouldn't know that i could pull it off mm-hmm. uh so it'd be like well maybe we should come up with a better idea maybe we should do something else or maybe i should build the set or maybe i should do this or that but you know I, uh, uh, I think roger guyette did all that and very deftly 
was able to recreate and simulate all the various things where I believed I was back in time right, right. watching a new scene. And, and, and that. So that's the, uh, the most recent. I mean, there's a bunch of them, even the Marvel movies. I look at some of the stuff, although they're not my t- cup of tea or I don't, I, I, I'm not a, a, a fantasy and science fiction fan. You look at some of the stuff that, that the, the stuff that they really pull off well. And it's like, well, I, A, I don't do that. And, and I'm not a conceptual artist and I can't make up these, these things that are not based in real life i just right. don't have any conceptual ability to do that um and I, I you know it's like well you know people think i can because i work in visual effects well i can't you know i'm not i don't do that and um you could supervise anything but some people are really gifted at the imagination it takes to do it uh, uh i saw a couple things in infinity war that were really clever and i and i thought that the 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 technique that they used for marwin was really quite incredible and um and maybe I could do it um, if I did if followed all the steps they did, but it could be along the way I would have talked myself out of something that they right. pulled off. So I don't walk away from that going, ah, oh, I could do that. That's easy. I walk away going, well, that's really clever stuff. That's really uh, incredible, uh, gifted filmmaking on, on, on a very high level. Whether the audience gets it or not, I get it. And, and uh, it's my opinion that it is. But I look at that and I, was, I thought that was really, really impressive. Uh, and there's, you know, there's so many of them. And when I go to the VES Awards or whatever, and I look at the work of that night, and even the work from the students, you look at these student films mm. and they're just astoundingly good. Where if you looked at anything I did as a student, be like, you would not be able to believe that I am, that there's even a reason to be talking to me if you saw what I started doing compared to what a student does at one of these award shows. It, it, it's amazing. Yeah. So it's, mm. it's always humbling. Uh, when you see uh, these other things and, you know, creativity is creativity. You, you, see somebody's you know uh, thing and you and when they pull it off it's it's daunting it's humbling it's and i think actors feel that way when they see uh christian bale in vice you look at right. vice and you go oh my god i yeah. cannot believe that guy is that guy there's it's it, it defies believability if you told me that the whole thing was a ruse and they got a guy who looked just like Dick Cheney, and right. I believe it because it was so unbelievable his his work. So I think if you were another actor, you know, in that category, you'd go, "Well, I can't, I can never do that." Right? Uh, you know. So it, 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 uh, I'm trying to think of other films where I, I'm uh, glad I wasn't asked to do it because I don't think I could pull it off as well as the people who did it. What did you think about? Um, did you see Gravity? Yes. Yeah. What did, what was your impression? Because that is such a CG movie, but it's um, what was your impression of that? Well, I liked it. Uh, I didn't adore it. I liked it, and uh, the the opening shots and things like that were thrilling and very well done. And the the anti gravity stuff with it was very well done. I didn't I, I, as a movie. I wasn't uh, uh, taken you know on the complete journey as as other people were. But I uh, uh, applauded and appreciated the filmmaking skill of trying to do it all in one and make the, you know, you, anybody can do a shot in one, but it's got to be fulfilling, like the, the, the scene in um, uh, uh, Goodfellas, where that one steady cam shot is so um, perfectly executed right. for the idea that it was is that it, it, it transported you where you felt like you were that guy going on this journey in the bowels of this place and having this this he's now special even though he's in a shitty hallway because he's allowed to go back where no one else is allowed to go and how do you depict that journey and so as long as the te- and the, the, the technical tour de force that it is is matched by it was the appropriate shot and thing for that particular movie and it's easy to try to cram everything in one but if it was forced and it doesn't tell the story well you're watching um a technical achievement that makes you stand out from the movie and go oh look at this cool steady cam shot they did for right. 10 minutes long it, it and and uh, uh and i think what they did in gravity and also they did in the other movie um that Michael Keaton was in, where they did you know long takes and things Birdman, like that. Some, yeah, yeah Birdman. Some of them were incredibly well done and and and, per, and perfectly suited for that particular movie. But you can't do it all the time, and not every shot is is right. the winner. That it is, no matter how difficult it was to do it. 
And that was my trauma trying to do the, the, the one shot with uh, in Hugo. Right. Of, I wanted to achieve the same uh, goal that um, uh, that that Marty did in, in Goodfellas, which is you need to feel like you are with him and that he right. lives in this particular environment. And each successive shot is telling you more of the story to appreciate, you know, in one you know, condensed uh, uh, piece of work that gets sort of amplified by your not editing it, by your 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 living it the way he lives it, and right. that was hard to do. I mean, and and I don't know that you pull it off until you're done. So I have two questions from our listeners, and okay. uh, uh, this question is from Nate Bali. Uh, he said, what would you say are the best practices in compositing stages of VFX to sell your ideas to make them look as real as possible? That's an interesting question to, or, and try to concisely answer it. I mean, the, the you have to, when you do a composite, have to think of what the final result is going to be and make sure, like, oh, like you're baking a cake, that all the ingredients that go into it are correct by mangling something that isn't quite right into the middle of your recipe will destroy it. Uh, so you have to kind of know what the idea that you're trying to get at is and then make sure that the elements live up to that, that they're lit exactly the way you think they should be lit, the quality level, the grain level, the resolution, all the various things are all in line, like you know the best ingredients to bake a cake. So the best practices are, and you start at the beginning and go simple first, the simple assembly is the best as soon as you start going down the rabbit hole of well i'll add contrast to this and take this away trying to defeat what's not right about the ingredients it starts to frankenstein to a certain amount and then when you're done it's like you don't even know if it's good or not it just looks weird and then you know you get a supervisor like me who didn't bake the cake but is now tasting it and telling you what ingredient isn't working it's really hard to do i don't know what you did i don't know that oh you took this element tweaked the crap out of it did this Uh, uh, but the best practice are somebody knows it's like in all things everything that's simply raw lighting start with one light and in mm-hmm. CG, just to go off on a tangent of, of compositing of various things, you start with one light and see what it does, and you aim it at the story. Just take the lamp and literally aim it at what you need to see. Mm-hmm. And it starts to tell you how to do it correctly. And then if it doesn't do 100% of the job, then you add one more to finish the, the sentence. And if you add five you don't know which one's working correctly and which one's not, or right, you have right. a Frankenstein. So again, you start from the from the uh, beginning. Make sure that each one is a quality item, and then the, and then it goes together pretty well and pretty quickly. And you know what you did that was incorrect when when questioned. It's like right. uh, that one looks like it's too dark. Oh yeah, it was too dark because I remember I put this thing here, you know, and all of a sudden your brain is able to fix it as opposed to I don't know what the hell I did. Right. Uh, I think it's interesting to to ask, you know, when you're looking at something like, you know, there's this video online where you kind of walk through um, Titanic, you know, the real footage versus the, you know, the, the model footage versus the real footage versus the model footage. And there's this replication of like mood that's very interesting with all of your work that I'm interested to see how do you, is that something you're trying to reach for as an actual mood, or is it just the technical side of it? No, it's it's all mood. It's it's you know again I'll go back to the Godfather. What struck me about the Godfather is the tone of the film from the beginning to the end had the same tonal quality. Right. And if I watch a TV show and they use a camera, they use an actor, they use sets, they use costumes. The tone is completely different. How is that tone so different in mm-hmm. the Godfather? And it's uniquely consistent from the beginning of the film to, to the rest because everything is working a concert that's one you know uh, 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 that's why it's working but so this missing ingredient that it was so impressed me when I was 15 or 16 is what I'm doing it's not technical the technical is like how you capture it but the tone is what the art form is trying to create so you go for the t- what gives me that tone and a lot of times it could be music it could be all those things so sometimes when you conceive of an idea you start with music you start with the tone of it what does I want it to feel like you and as soon as you do that that's a, sort of a tip if anybody's listening um, is that you you pick 
a, a artistic point of view that once you pick it and that becomes your, your, your North star, your guiding light, well, when you start to observe things, you see a book that goes, Oh, that picture looks interesting. It looks interesting because you've told your brain where you want to head. And all of a sudden mm, out of the, right. out of the sea of a bunch of nonsensical stuff, something leaps out. And yeah. because your, your brain taste. is on, yeah. and you start to uh, pick apart these things in life, in movies and right. pictures, and it doesn't matter where it comes from. And you start to assemble something that helps you create the tone and what it feels like, right. and what gives you the, this mood. Like in the in the Titanic, what gives you the mood? Well, you know, Jim was able to recreate the mood by he did the best he could to photograph it. It's way deep underwater the light attenuates down it goes from warm to blue almost immediately because of how much uh, uh, stuff is in the in the water and so technically he's just trying to get it on film but the mood that was created was creepy and ghost-like and it was like well i'm doing that i have to make it look and feel like that and i'm using a model that's you know the size of a small tiny nerf football and and a 15 foot titanic instead of the big thing and i'm shooting in smoke with you know, dollies moving these little tiny uh, subs. So I have to now apply my technical portion of it to make that disappear and become tone again, become mood. And, and, and that's the, that's the, the, the that's the art form. That's right. The, so I want to end it on this question. Cause I thought it was a really good question from uh, my friend, Alex Rivera. He said, how do you approach using VFX to not only enhance the actual on-screen elements, but also as the extension of the visual language from the DP and the director that they've established. And is that the collaboration open for suggestion from you? Yes, it's definitely open to suggestion. And um, I'll try to answer this well, is that even if it's not direct collaboration, even if it's not like, okay, let's all sit in a room and all discuss it, because some art forms don't translate to other art forms readily, um, uh, the what work they already did on the movie, and when they hand the baton off to you, you've co- you're actually collaborating with them because they've established certain things that are the tone of the movie that you're now fitting into. So it's not necessarily like everybody sits in a room and and all agrees to do the same right. thing, and everybody helps each other out. Uh, it can be in uh, in the case of Hugo where everybody was so good and everybody was serving one master which is marty and who's serving the master of of the film that it was collaborative and exciting because everybody wanted it to turn out their ego was not uh in in authoring the image in and of themselves it was in support of all these other things but it wasn't quite like we all got in a room and said okay you do this and you do that everybody was doing their part and we and each one took what the other person did and incorporated into their work and everything else. So th- th- there's that portion of, of collaboration. And then, I'll, I'll, and then this happens more often than not. A lot of times I'll shut down at a certain point and, and cause you could be helped too much. Like if you're a director and you're too collaborative, everything starts to misdirect your work. Right, right. Your point of view starts to, to diminish. So you can be helped too much. So you have to know when to shut off. And, you know, Marty is a master at it. He wants your opinion when he wants it, doesn't want it when he, when he doesn't right. want it. And Jim Cameron's the same way and all the rest of them. When they get stuck, sometimes it's like, you know, what do you think? And you, and you throw something out that they riff off of, whether it's the same exact thing you said, or it sparks something else. So there's that level of collaboration. Um, it's just different than in, in what you dream it is and what it really is. Uh, and then you, um, you know, my, job i guess that from the beginning and, and especially since i direct and i and i shoot is if i'm working on a, a martin scorsese project with bob richardson photographing it and dante ferretti i have to make it look like they did it i yeah. have to make it look like i'm not really part of the mix in my own, not that i don't add my own spin on a shot or uh, or how to cover a scene or whatever but i do have to light it to feel like it, it could have been a choice that Bob made. And right. the trick of doing that stuff is you don't copy what somebody does. You emulate what the the thought process would have been had they been there. And it's hard to not stress that enough is because you when you copy, you could only do what somebody did, not what they're going to do. 
faced with the same situation. So you have the point of view of this North Star is telling you, I need to make my scene feel like Martin Scorsese directed it and Bob Richardson shot it. And I I didn't violate Dante Ferretti's uh, uh, set that he constructed by me like redirecting it. Like, oh, let me just change the furniture around the way I like it. I'm not an expert in that. I can't do it. But... In a movie set, you do have to move stuff around to make the shot work and has to still feel like the art director decided that that was the best look for the story again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's incredibly collaborative in that you are trying to uh, assist and not take over someone else's portion of the movie. And I think that's all true of all aspects of movie making. You know, the actor really collaborates with the director, even if they don't speak much, because they both agreed on the part. Right. and, uh, and uh, agreed on the blocking and they are allowed to do their artistry um, without the illusion of collaboration of everybody sitting around in a room and sharing ideas and everybody agreeing on everything. The amount of people that you work with um, is a lot over the years, but the quality, you've worked with the, some of the best filmmakers that have ever lived, some would say, you know. Um, you know, Marty Scorsese and Bob Richardson, and you know, dare I say, even Michael Bay, you know, I think yeah, there's, no, he's, there's some, Michael, there's Michael's some, an artist. He's really right. good at, at the in his own way. Right. And not everybody loves the movies he right. makes, but they're really, I mean, you look Anytime, at the construction I mean, of his shots, they're pretty right. damn great. I would, I would challenge anybody that if you're watching TV on a Saturday afternoon and Armageddon comes on, you're going to watch it. Yeah. It's the most addictive movie you can watch. It's just, it's, I think it's, it's one of my favorite movies and people make fun of me about it. I had a ball doing, doing uh, bad boys too. And, and yeah. I got to learn from him and you know, what an eye he's got. He's got a tremendous eye and, yeah. uh, and all that stuff. And he makes the movie that people want to see. It's right. vastly <laughs> it's entertaining. True. So, I mean, he gets a lot of crap uh, right. that he doesn't deserve, but, um, and he's like, I like him too, personally. I mean, I, I right. Time. So now, so having worked with all those people, is there some kind of through line of of um, personality or techniques or you know just something that all of them share? Um, well, there's two traits that they all share, and and anybody who's good at anything they do is uh, they have balls. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, where they are willing to um, uh, uh, fail. And uh, and that takes balls. You, uh, the willingness not to fail is is you're you're essentially uh, an artistic coward. I don't want to take a chance because I, I might not be able to pull it off. And so you can only achieve what has already been achieved. You can never go uh, one step further. So they all have this unabashed like um, I chose the journey. The journey is where I want to go on, and, and somehow I'm going to have the confidence of the balls to say I'm going to pull it off. I'm going to actually get there, even though I don't know how to do it right now. So there's right. that portion of it um and the other portion of it uh as ego driven as the movie business is when you reach the the upper echelon of the the martin scorsese you know versions of the world and even Mm -hmm. the jim cameron who you'd say okay well his ego is great his ego is never greater than the film's ego he is not Mm -hmm. screwing up his movie for uh his point of view to be correct a lot of times it is correct as it is with all talented filmmakers but you know if you say something and do something that contributes they may or may not like the impertinence of how you delivered it but it's going in the movie because it's the best for the film and every person i've ever worked with who was good really good um will protect their turf but if you said you know what if you did that and they go got it that's great i'm Mm, doing that and without going well now i look stupid because you thought of it now i'm now i'm not going to do it because otherwise everybody's going to know that you they do not care and the best goes into the film and you know i certainly feel that way when i'm doing something i I have a very strong point of view of what i want to do and what i want to achieve but if somebody the guy sweeping the floor comes up and says what if it were darker i'd be like yeah you're right it's darker and I'll give him credit. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll right. be glad to, to encourage other people to do the same. Doesn't mean you want everybody to give you ideas all the time. Cause again, right. you get help too much, but when you need it or when it shows up, it's like the, the magic of movie making when a happy accident happens, what makes you, and this is also true of all the other people I've mentioned is that you create an atmosphere where an accident could happen and then have the wherewithal and the patience and the consideration to use it. It's like yeah. somebody forgot their line, but you know what? It was better. 
It was better mm-hmm. that they forgot. I, the look on their face was correct. Even though they're searching for what the next thing to say is, that confusion, the look, the thing is perfect. It's supposed to say, cut, 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 you forgot your line. It's yeah. like, oh, Marty, if anything like that happened, he is all over it. He is, that's going in the film. Right. Uh, and, and, that, and that's true of everybody. You go down the journey, and all of a sudden it takes you to a left turn that, well, obviously I'm off the course, but it's really interesting. I don't know. Yeah. It's really cool, and and you do it, and that, and that, and uh, I think everybody I've ever worked with who I admire, and everybody that I admired, I did get a chance to work with, and I study their work, and all do the all have the same sort of trait. They uh, hmm. they allow a happy accident to find its way in the movie, uh, and my when I, I directed a TV show one time, and there's a really clever, funny mishap that happened that everybody laughed and I didn't use it because I was afraid that it wasn't what everybody expected and I regretted it, you know, to this very day because it's like the happy accident showed up and I didn't take advantage of it so didn't see the light of day because of my own you know stupidity and so from that moment on you go well I'm not going to let that happen again And, and it's very it's very tangible so the reason why Martin Scorsese is Martin Scorsese is every happy accident that worked is in the film. And same thing with Jim Cameron right. and Michael Bay and, and Neil Jordan and Ron Howard and, and everybody who, who uh, you know, I've worked with or, or whatever. They, they all have the same. John Favreau, they all have the same sort of thing. That cleverness is now going to take advantage of it. Right. Rob, I could talk to you forever, man. Um, <laughs> I hope you I got really something you like yeah, on it. This is so good. I mean, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom. And we just have to have you back at some point, I'm sure. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to, help to, to do it. I hope uh, I got something out of it. This episode was mixed by Christian Strotko, or as I like to call him, my dear friend, Christian. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at goodthepodcast.com. 